classes on the thank you on the parables of the Lotus Sutra. And we're going to do we're going to speak about the last two parables tonight, <clears throat> chapter 14 and chapter 16. And I want to touch a little on chapter 15, which kind of leads into 16. Um, but to begin with, uh, let's see. I like to see myself in the gallery. I don't need to see myself up close uh, and recognize that I need to shave. Um, I just wonder if there are any if there are any questions held over from the last class or or other classes, and uh, we can take a moment to uh, to look at that. Uh, if you have anything that you wanted to ask about, or anything that you that occurred to you in the last week, and I, I want to ask as we go through this. Also, uh, I have some some sort of overarching questions that uh, I'll address later, but you may have some questions, so please raise your digital hand if you do. Okay, well, I'm not seeing anything. Um, so the Lotus Sutra breaks down in uh, different ways to divide the content of the Sutra. Uh, but one of the ways is basically it splits chapter one to uh, 13 or 14, and then 14 to through the end. And the the chapters and all the parables that we have uh, been looking at so far all concern themselves with skillful means, uh, with kind of laying out of, well, skillful means and also uh, the one vehicle, uh, the bodhisattva or the Buddha vehicle, uh, of which the Shravaka and Pacheka vehicles are expressions but not but they're incomplete expressions the latter half uh, focuses more on two aspects uh, and we're not we're going to just touch on the first aspect and the first aspect is uh, about basically the practices of bodhisattvas. Uh, there's a wonderful way to think about uh, looking at the at the content that uh, the first half sort of points us towards seeing what are the various skillful means, what are the seeing the various expressions of uh, Buddhism up to the point of the preaching of the Lotus Sutra. And the second half 
is really fundamentally concerned with doing. It's concerned with the, the doing of waking up to Buddhahood and, and teaching, actually. So the focus is very much on how the, how the bodhisattvas teach. And that's where these chapters that we're going to look at, particularly 15 and 16, lead today. So that's a way of, of thinking about the division of the division of the whole text. So in this chapter 14, um, what are, let me read you the parable, if that's okay. Uh, it's not, it's, it's relatively concise. Uh, and then we'll talk about the whole chapter. So the parable, this is just the parable, which is only one part of the chapter. Uh, the Buddha is addressing Manjushri. Suppose a powerful emperor wanted to subdue other countries, but lesser kings would not obey his command. The emperor gathers an army to overcome them. He recognizes soldiers having done brave deeds in war and bestows boons according to their merit, estates, villages, garments, ornaments, treasures, Gold, silver, mother of pearl, coral, elephants, horses, chariots, servants, and subjects. But he never gives them the jewel in his top knot. So he's got a, a top knot with a, a precious jewel embedded in it. Ah, only, only the noble emperor has this precious jewel. If the emperor gives away, gives it away, his attendants would certainly be surprised and mistrustful. Oh, Manjushri, the Tathagata is exactly like this. He has attained the Dharma throughout his powers, through his powers of concentration and wisdom. Uh, since Mara kings will not obey him, so Mara, uh, I think you all probably recall the story of the Buddha's awakening when he is tempted by uh, Mara, who is the embodiment of delusion. So by the time the doctrine kind of evolved, you have Mara as uh, manifesting as a king of several different deluded realms. So since Mara kings will not obey him, <clears throat> the wise and noble generals of the Tathagata come to do battle with them. The Tathagata rejoices at meritorious ones and teaches various sutras to the fourfold assembly. He bestows upon them the property of all the teachings about concentrations, liberations, faculties, without corruption and faculties without corruption and powers. He also bestows upon them the city of Nirvana, which uh, going back a little really refers to the uh, that magical city that we spoke of last week. Um, so the city of Nirvana saying that they have attained Nirvana, he leads their minds onward and gladdens them all. And yet, he does not teach the Lotus Sutra. Oh, oh Manjushri, it is as if the noble emperor, emperor finally 
gives the jewel concealed in his topknot. Though he perceived the merit of soldiers and was pleased, he did not rashly give them the jewel. The Tathagata is exactly like this. Since he is the great king of the Dharma, he inspires sentient beings through the Dharma. When he sees the noble soldiers who have done battle with the Mara of the five aggregates, the Mara of desires and the Mara of death, those who have, who have merit in battle and have distinguished, extinguished the three poisons, he rejoices greatly. He now teaches the Lotus Sutra, which is treated, which is, this is a really interesting thing. He now teaches the Lotus Sutra, which is treated with hostility by the entire world and is difficult to believe in, and which he has never taught before, and he enable, and enables sentient beings to attain omniscience. Om Manjushri, this Lotus Sutra is the last teaching of the Tathagata, the most profound among the teachings, conferred at the very end, and in the same way that the very powerful and noble emperor gave away the jewel after having preserved it for a long time. So that's the parable. Um, this chapter begins with pretty extensively with a kind of outline and preaching of what is called in some contexts, peaceful practices. Um, he teaches, he, he explains how the bodhisattvas should teach. And he points to uh, that he outlines these, these practices in some detail, and he calls them practices without characteristics, which means um, the practices that he's talking about, which are, which are quite, they're, they're practices of conduct, their practices of uh, operations of our mind. Uh, they are not particularly practices. In this case, he's not talking about practices of meditation. Uh, he's talking about, um, let, me, let me just read you something from the one of the commentaries. So it's a practice that is not defined by specific posture or ritual setting, but that can be carried out in the course of whatever one may be doing. So in other words, it's practices for our activities in the world. Uh, and he goes into this in great detail. Uh, he talks about Endurance, patience, uh, gentleness, uh, following reason, and con conduct with composure, uh, and a view that sees all things as ultimately empty, and conduct that is not governed by what one sees as appearances. 
Uh, and then he goes into a list, which I'm not going to itemize here, of all of the, the various qualities that uh, are cultivated. But this is all before he gives the parable. So this is like a, this is the preface and, and really, I think this really reflects the shift that is taking place in the text. The moving from these provisional practices of uh, our kind of uh, our conduct in the world to practices of bodhisattvas and, and Buddhas, which are uh, which are about actually how we relate, how we interact with others. So basically he's saying, I think, in this parable, he's delineating all of these practices that were uh, we've seen in different aspects in the earlier part of the text. And then he's saying, yeah, but then there's the jewel in the top knot. And uh, I'm going to tell you about it now. And that's where the that's where the real shift is uh, in this chapter 14, moving to the, the latter half of the book. Um, so it's an interesting parable in that uh, I think a lot of these parables, I was, I was thinking about them today, that there are certain ways in which, to me, they don't exactly hang together in a logical in a logical sense. Um, they they point towards something, but the whatever it is that they're pointing to um, never certainly doesn't sit quite comfortably in my mind. And I don't know how it is. I don't know how it is for you. Actually, I'm curious to know. But um, you know, so he's giving us these practices. And he's not denigrating them. They're important. They're good. But he's withholding this uh, this principle practice, uh, the Lotus Sutra, which is the jewel in the top knot. Um, So this teaching has been deferred until now. Uh, and it's now that you get to hear uh, what, what the Lotus Sutra consists of, which is, which is teaching. Uh, one of the things that uh, that one of the commentators writes is that the king had numerous valuable things to give away. Uh, but these were possessions that were pertained to his body, whereas the, the jewel pertained to his head. And seeing the head as the abode of the animating spirit or the mind that directs the body. Uh, so all people use their body, but actually being able to 
work with and utilize one's spirit is the necessary activity of a bodhisattva. Uh, and to share that spirit with others. So I'm curious, you know, if you have any if you have thoughts or comments or impressions of the about this about this parable. Lori? Um Stupid question. Is that the whole thing? That's the parable? That, he's that is the whole parable. So, and the, and the thing that he's withheld is the Lotus Sutra, which is, we've already had 14 chapters of. Right. So, and you never really get to it by the end of the book. I mean, you sort of never, <laughs> as I recall. So, well, that's um, the way. Yeah. I guess I kept thinking we were going to find out what was the jewel. I got sucked in again. It's Lucy and the football all over again. I got sucked in to think that there was going to be something in the top knot that was going to be it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's like, wait, haven't we been? Haven't we already read half of the half of the Lotus Sutra? You know. Oh, and now we're going to hear the Lotus Sutra, but but we never do. I mean, one of the things that's really uh, interesting and perplexing about this text is uh you're all you at least in my reading of it you're always hearing you're hearing about the lotus sutra and you keep waiting for for it to be delivered and uh you know you can wait a long time but if you wait then you're, you're overlooking the fact that the whole thing is the lotus sutra yeah. the whole thing is is a it is a way the lotus sutra is a way to get you to uh realign the view that you have of the dharma as a whole yeah and it keeps doing that that it keeps it keeps that's why i said the parallels are not so comfortable for me because they keep throwing me into an uncomfortable space where i want to say well wait a minute you know and uh that is exactly what prompts our thinking. It's other, a, other, like a koan, uh, but a different, sort of like, kind yes. of like a koan, but a different style, a different way to get to that same quality. Yeah. And it, it, it's interesting, you know, we, we have the koans, um, but when you talk to uh, Hung Shur and the people down at the, uh, at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery in the city of 10,000 Buddhas, they don't read the koans. They don't know anything about the koans. Uh, they read these, they read these sutras. And, uh, you know, the sutras really uh, pose the same kinds of, uh, the same kinds of practice-based questions for them. You know, they're going about it a different way. I'm looking to see if they're hands. Carol?
Did you raise your hand, Carol? Yes, yes. Oh. Well, it seems this is what he's been doing all along. You know, you're in with all those toys he gave us. And then, well, this isn't really it. Right. We have further to go. And he's done that several times, just probably in every chapter. And here it is again. And it's sort of, I don't know. Are we got, isn't there going to be something? No, this is this is good. I it occurred to me this is the great bait and switch sutra. <laughs> you know, uh, they keep promising us something, uh, but we have to discover for ourselves what it is. Uh, Ross, thank you, Hassan. Uh, I like to think of it at, that the sutra is the parable, and even though they're these parables that are um, uh, recorded and studied within the sutra, the actual whole sutra feels like that to me. And the um, the jewel, the top knot, is kind of, it reminds me of um, a friend of mine and I uh, rode on my motorcycle years ago. And um, we got we got off the motorcycle, they said, where's my helmet? They had forgotten that their helmet was on their head still. <laughs> and um, the top knot, I, I feel we all have this jewel top knot. And we're looking for understanding the parables and what's being teased out here and the, the uh, you know, bait and switch, which I like that, that uh, kind of uh, way of looking at it going here but actually being switched that it's actually it's, it's always right here it's still there but it's not like in zen we talk about that very explicitly but in this in the old sutras it's alluded to but we don't quite get hit over the head with it so to speak with a um this is actually what's what's going on so we're kind of left you know discussing and and uh bringing up really valid points to try to understand it but it might be much much more simple than it actually uh, appears to be. Yeah, I want to come back to that as as a question. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's really well well stated. It's like looking for your glasses when they're <laughs> you're wearing them. <laughs> um, Hannah. keep coming back to this is what all those Buddhists are chanting. Why is this what so many Buddhists in the world are chanting? Why is this Buddhism for them? Well, that's, that's part of the same question I want to get get back to that it's related to what Ross was saying. But I, I think one reason that they're chanting it is because for for many people, it creates an incredible devotional space mm. uh, because it's actually promising Buddhahood. And it's promising it in a way that's a lot more direct than uh, virtually any other text that I know. Uh, in, in the whole last half of the sutra, it just keeps saying over and over again, you're going to be a Buddha. And uh, that brings forth 
uh, that brings forth uh, dev devotion. Uh, so I, I think that's the answer to that. But that may not be so, so satisfying to you, or it may not be so satisfying to me either. But, uh, but to explore it, I'm very interested in exploring it on its own terms. So that, that's why I want to be doing this. But it, just to go back to something that Ross said a moment ago, um, what I like about the, the Gene Reeves book, Stories of the Lotus Sutra, is that the whole, the whole Lotus Sutra is seen as a collection of stories, not just the parables, and the stories unfold throughout the whole throughout the whole text. So it's a, it's a text of stories, which um, you know are are quite interesting. But you have to somebody sometimes you have to wade through the verbiage to get the stories. Um, Sue Osher and then Sue Marvin, and we'll go on. Oh no, I see. Okay, but Sue Osher. Thank you. Um, I don't get the attraction of jeweled carts, elephants, maybe elephants, but of uh, the toys and the jewels and the robes. And I never did, even as a kid listening to fairy tales about princesses, princesses and kings and queens, I, um, it didn't seem like an attractive life. Is this trying to evoke greed for Dharma? I guess I don't understand that. Let's hold that question. I, I really want to address these are all these are all circling around the same question. And I'll just say what the question is, um, in a large sense is how is this sutra is it useful for us? Uh, and that's, but I want to come back to it because like, I want to, I want to look at these other two chapters. Uh, Susan. Well, um, the way that's useful for me, this parable reminds me of, um, Sojin Roshi. Like he would never tell you what the jewel in the top knot was. Never. Mm -hmm. He would just throw it, whatever he would ask me, he would just throw it right back out to you. And uh, I mean, I agree with Ross that every single one of us has a jewel in the, in the top knot, but we, we think that it's somewhere else or it's in someone else, or this is not Buddha. And, you know, so, um, you know, I think it was in the parable of the, the plants says that our lives are just full of, a variety of circumstances. And to me, that's what it keeps pointing back to throughout the Lotus Sutra and in this parable. And Sojin was always doing that. Like, okay, you're in this, okay, deal with this and then throw it away. And then you're in the next circumstance. And so um, that's kind of what I'm getting from it. Well, I, yeah, I think what what's interesting there also is that uh, in its very unwillingness to specify what the Lotus Sutra is, it's doing just that. You know, 
it's 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 throwing it back to you that you figure out what the lotus sutra it's not for not for this text to tell you it's for you to figure out which is also true of it's you know that's a way that's really a way of reading period of recognizing that that each of us creates the text you know um look at that doggy of christians beautiful um uh so yeah i think i think that's right that's that's an interesting that's an interesting parallel thank you hey go well i'm actually looking a little bit ahead but uh, uh before i go to that the image of the lotus is one of hope and in each of these cases i mean in each of the parables it seems that people get to the point of the brink and find hope and in the lotus the image of the classic image of the lotus is in the midst of mud arises a flower that when it blooms is perfectly pure and clean right and we see that in that image and so in the next one the thus come one's lifespan which if you've read it suggests that it's infinite in length and breadth and depth and beyond conception uh the the uh, thus come one's lifespan so in this next story it talks about the people of his sons hundreds perhaps tens or hundreds have drunk poison and yet each of one of them each one of them can have hope and it, it I don't think it's going to come to the point of each and every one of them healing, but it will come to the point of delivering hope. And I think that's the very image and to me the secret, because I, I wrestled with this issue. What is the Lotra When am I going to get to the point where there's like five lines or a hundred lines that say it? But uh, as we've been talking here, it's that image of hope and the many, many opportunities or paths or, uh, the ways that the stories talk about that we can access. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't want to jump ahead to the 16th chapter quite yet, but we will. We will get there. But I think that the over the overarching message is one of hope and of being offered hope and having the awareness, an awareness that is finely tuned enough to to actually accept it when it's given. Stan. You did. I guess this is uh, related to the hope, but uh, I have a question about sort of the the very very beginning of this parable, at least the the first translation of it. Um, it's talking about a future ending time, an ending age when the Dharma is about to become extinct, and then it goes on to say how the Bodhisattva should teach and think about that and um later a couple of paragraphs later it talks about the future age again when the dharma is about to become extinct um can you say more about that in in terms of yes the the, the stages of buddhism or something yeah it's a it's a cosmological it's a buddhist cosmological view in which there are there are three stages uh and uh the first two last about 500 years, uh, or roughly, you know, one is when, when it was actually possible to hear 
the Dharma uh, from people who experienced it, first from people who who had heard the Buddha, uh, and then from from generations of uh, of arhats, from learning from arhats and enlightened beings. The second stage is when you could study the Dharma, when you could uh, you could read about it, you could still there were vestiges of the Dharma still really alive, like you know, like live embers. And the third stage, uh, which is known in in Japanese as Mapo, M-A-P-P-O, uh, that's the age that we are living in. And there's a lot of controversy of that about this, but it's it's the age of the the declining where it's very very difficult to hear the dharma uh and that's you know the whole school of buddhism that really focuses on the lotus sutra uh in particular the nichiren school in japan is premised on the fact that we are living in the age of mapo and it's hopeless and we also we just throw ourselves into the house of the lotus sutra because there's nothing else that that really uh will save us so it's complicated i don't that cosmological view is not something that was really communicated certainly not communicated in in soto zen not communicated uh dogen did not emphasize it i think he I think he referred to it now, now and then, but he seemed to believe that it was still possible to really practice Buddhism and to awaken. Uh, and certainly, our teachers felt that. You know, uh, they were trying to give us the genuine experience of the Dharma because they believed it was still possible to do that. And you know, uh, we have. I think we have seen Buddhas and Bodhisattvas walking among us. And uh, that, go back to Heiko's point, that, that gives me hope and not, and not despair, even at a time that, you know, it's really difficult and there's a lot to despair about. Yeah, I think, and I, it seems like the, the Lotus Sutra and all these parables are, um, giving us a way of surviving in this this horrible time or this bad yeah. time which of course has been bad for eons forever yeah and so uh, it's not just it's just not the end times it's the times right right um i want to move ahead a little um i just want to give just a very brief overview of chapter 15 without going into much detail because it's it's the bridge to 16 and it's it's quite interesting uh, you know the story in chapter uh 15 is that all these bodhisattvas have from from i think like chapter 11 on you have this like this is this saha world has become a great tourist destination for bodhisattvas and so they've come from all these different worlds and they're hanging out and they really want to help. And the Buddha says, 
that's great. I really appreciate it. But actually, there are all of these bodhisattvas right here, and they're living under the ground. Um, let's see if I find the. The description is pretty cool, if I can find it quickly. Um, the Buddha addressed all the host of Bodhisattva Mahasattvas, enough, my good sons. There is no need for you to protect and keep the sutra. Wherefore, because in my Saha world, there are in fact Bodhisattva Mahasattvas as numerous as the sands of 6,000 Ganges. Uh, and then he goes into this great numerical uh, uh, counting. It just it goes on for like two pages. Uh, and then the Bodhisattvas, they emerge from beneath the earth. Uh, and they extolled the Buddhas with all kinds of Bodhisattva hymns, and all this time passes. Uh, and then the, Bodhi, the Buddha says, he says, so it is, so it is, my good sons, the Tathagata is at ease with few ailments and few troubles. These beings are, and this is, this is when, the, when the Buddha uh, chronologically was in his 70s. Uh, these beings are easy to transform and I am free from weariness. Wherefore, because all these beings for generations, for the, all, all these beings for generations have constantly retrieved my instruction and worshiped and honored the Buddhas, cultivating roots of goodness. Uh, and what he's saying here is, I've been around, well, Maitreya says, well, this is weird. Where did all these bodhisattvas come from? And uh, the Buddha says, I have been teaching them for countless eons. Uh, and and you know, Maitreya is asking, well, wait, you've only, you know, you've only been teaching for 40 years. How could there be all these thousands and thousands of bodhisattvas? And this is when he says, it only appears to you that I've been teaching for just 40 years. Uh, actually, I've been around for eons, for immeasurable time, and all that time I have been teaching. And this is where you begin to get the frame of the immeasurable lifespan of the Buddha. And this is something very different. Uh, so, uh, This leads to chapter, it leads to chapter 16. Um, and I just want to label my notes one more time here. Uh, so let me go to chapter 16. Uh, so chapter 16 is seen as the key to the second half of the Lotus Sutra. Uh, the first pivotal chapter uh, which we alluded to is chapter two, which outlines skillful means 
which is right before the chapter of the burning house, uh, which is chapter three. This one talks about the Buddha's lifespan. And I think that it's uh, one of the things that, that's interesting here uh, is that there's some, I feel like there's some correspondence to uh, the koan that Gary is teaching us from Yunmen's uh, medicine and sickness subdue each other. Because this one, the parable here, is about medicine and sickness. Um, so you have this whole explication in chapter 16 that uh, the Buddha explains in detail what he, what he referred to in the previous chapter, explains that it only appeared that he was born, uh, that he was born and he was enlightened uh, when he was 35 and that he, that he died and had parinirvana. That was itself skillful means. And, you know, that was offered because uh, it was seen that the people who were coming to him to be saved, uh, they needed to know that there was some urgency to seeing him, that his lifespan was limited and they needed to make the effort to see the Buddha now, rather than to take it for granted that he was be going to be around all the time. Um, so he's laying out, I wasn't really born. I didn't really die. I'm here all the time. Uh, and then he then he gives us this parable of uh, the doctor and his sons. And so let me, let me read you that. I can read it from the book, actually. Suppose, for instance, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I wonder, here's the, the, the section uh, about why he, why he offers this, this kind of conventional life to people. He says, if the Buddha advise, abides long in the world, people of little virtue who do not cultivate, cultivate the roots of goodness and are poor and mean, greedily attached to the five desires, are caught in the net of wrong reflection and false views. If they see the Tathagata constantly present and not extinct, will then become puffed up and lazy and unable to conceive the fact See the idea that it is hard to meet the Buddha, yeah, hard to meet the Beatles, hard to meet the Buddha, or the mind of reverence for him. Therefore, the Tathagata skillfully teaches no bhikshus. The appearance of Buddhas in the world is a rare occurrence. So, a little later, he goes to here's the parable. Suppose a good physician who is wise and conversant with medical art and skillful in healing all sorts of diseases. He has many sons, 20, even up to 100. Uh, for some reason, he goes abroad to a distant country. After his departure, 
His son, sons drink his other poisonous medicines, which send them into a delirium, and they lie rolling on the ground. At this moment, their father comes back to his home. Of the sons who drank the poison, some have lost their senses. Others are still sensible. But on seeing their father in the distance, they are all greatly delighted and salute him, asking, how good it is that you are returned in safety. We, in our foolishness, have mistakenly dosed ourselves with poison. We beg that you will heal us and give us back our lives. The father, seeing his sons in such distress, uh, seeks good herbs and mixes them together and gives them to his sons, saying, this excellent medicine uh, you may now take, and it will, once, it will at once rid you of the distress that you will have no more suffering. So those amongst the sons who are sensible seeing this excellent medication, uh, take it immediately and are totally delivered from their illness. The others who have lost their senses, uh, although they delight in seeing their father come and they ask him to heal their illness, when he offers them the medicine, they are unwilling to take it. Why? because the poison has entered deeply and they have lost their senses. And even in regard to this medicine, they feel that it is not good. The father reflects, alas for these sons, afflicted by this poison, their minds are all unbalanced. Though they are glad to see me and beg to be healed, they're unwilling to take the medicine. Now I must arrange an expedient plan so they will take it. Then he says, you know, I am now worn out with old age and the time of my death will soon arrive. This excellent medicine I'll leave here for you. You may take it and have no fear of the illness continuing. So thus addressing them, he departs for another country once again, and he sends a messenger back to tell them, your father is dead. And now when those sons hear that their father is dead, their minds are greatly distressed. And they say, if our father were alive, he would have pity on us, and we should be saved and preserved. But now he has left and left us and died in a distant country. Now we feel we are orphans and we have no one to rely on. Continuous grief brings them to their senses. And they recognize the excellence of this medicine and take it. And their poisoning is entirely relieved. The father, hearing that the sons are all recovered, returns so that they all can see him. All my good sons, what is your opinion? Uh, so now this is the Buddha saying, uh, saying to those who are present, he said, what is your opinion? Are there any who could say that this, could, that this physician had committed the sin, the sin of falsehood? In other words, had he lied or deceived uh, his sons? Uh, and is that excusable? We had the same question 
that was raised in in chapter three in the burning house this is this is a this is a big question that the sutra takes on the, the question is are skillful means deceptive and it's like we're talking about bait and switches is that fair if it has a positive outcome so so that's the parable and the parable is unpacking the perception that we have through buddhist history that the buddha was a real person lived a limited lifespan uh and it's now saying there's something else the buddha represents something else and uh we have an opportunity we're being given a glimpse we've been given a glimpse of it in lotus sutra so um that's that parable and i'm i'm curious if you have any impressions or thoughts or questions about that Jonathan. Thank you. I was actually, um, on rereading it, I was really struck by something in the 14th chapter, um, and specifically the second translation, 14b. Um, there's a, a fairly lengthy passage where Buddha is instructing Manjushri on, on what is the sphere of the relationships of the Bodhisattva Mahasattva? And then he goes through this list of, here are all the people you shouldn't associate with. Yes. And um, this is another, this is also good. It's got its, its, its own nexus of misogyny and, and uh, gender prejudice. All of that is, is really there. And um First, I found it interesting that it didn't appear in the first translation. Um, I think that it had to do with how I excerpted it. Okay. Um, but it also conflicts with, I mean, it, it conflicts with modern sensibilities, but it also conflicts with, you know, for example, the Vimalakirti Sutra, where the second chapter of that sutra describes in, in pretty intricate detail like here are all the places that Vimala Kirti goes and all the people that he associates with precisely to bring them the Dharma. Yeah, all the ones who are prescribed in this one, right? And um, and there's a real conflict there. Yes. Yeah, there's a real conflict there. Um, and this is left to us to sort out. You know, and anyway, uh, do you have any resolution to this conflict? I mean, not a resolution. I think I, I simply agree with one and not the other. Uh huh. Okay. <clears throat> I, I don't, I don't see anywhere to, anywhere to square the two. If that's what you're asking. I'm just, yeah, I'm just asking where you go with it, and it's, it's fine. Uh, Aiko. I speak of cessation, though, uh, although I remain, it says here, 
quoting the Buddha. And I, speaking of cessation, although I actually remain as admitting to an outright so-called lie. And that is because it's functional for waking up sons who otherwise need a panic. All of us, if we, if we took the idea that our life were, was eternal, we might relax, and uh, I think that's actually a pretty good plan, but we might relax to the point where we don't recognize that our non-separation from other beings requires us to act. And so although we may be comfortable and joyous in our being, all around us are people who are not in touch. And so we speak of the panic. We, we, we raise the dire consequence. Uh, though it's not real. And uh, I would say that all the different means, which are really quite different in this book, uh, uh, need hope and hope need, and I'm going back to that, and that uh, we could take the view that we remain and have plenty of time, and I think it's wise. We could also take the view that we better get on it and I think that's wise too. And so I think it's, that's why it, it's, I don't think we're coming up with a clear answer of what this is all about. Well, I think that, you know, I wanted to read you something from uh, uh, this uh, Lopez and Jackie Stone's uh, commentary uh, on, uh, this is on chapter 16. Uh, in the parable chapter of Lotus Sutra, this is the burning house chapter, Shakyamuni describes the world as a burning house in which there is no safe place. But now in the lifespan chapter, having revealed his true identity as the prim primordially awakened Buddha, Shakyamuni declares that even in the fire that destroys the world at the end of the cosmic cycle, his land, the present world, this world, is tranquil and never decays. It is a place where sentient beings are joyful. Uh, and on the next page, he says, in the Lotus Sutra's language, even in a world ravaged by fire and torn with anxiety and distress, one can, so to speak, experience the gardens, palaces, and heavenly music of the Buddha realm. So this is the conundrum. Certainly it's a conundrum for me. And what I, what I feel is that um, The views that we have are fluid. They are neither real nor unreal, or they are both real and unreal. Uh, that the view of a world on fire, of a world where a nation is in civil war or another nation brutally invades a neighbor where uh, people go into public places 
and kill large numbers of people. This is, that is, that is terrible. That's true, that's not false. At the same time, there is emerging love and life and music. That's also true. And the real difficulty of our practice, I think this is the essence to me, it's the essence of our Zen practice is uh, to hold these realities at the same time. How do you do that? This is, this is the condition of the Saha world. So, so that's, that's a way that I look at it. And I, I feel that that's what we've been given by our teachers. That's what we've been given by, by Sojin and by Suzuki Roshi and in our lineage. Um, but I, I have a, a question. I don't know if it's exactly related or not related, but I wanted to, to I wanted to, to make a confession. Uh, and the confession is that my faith is simply in the practice that we've been given. Uh, and it doesn't feel to me that my faith in that practice hinges on an assurance that I will become a Buddha. It's more that it, the practice is to be as much like the Buddha as I can and whatever is going to work out is okay with me. But my practice is not premised on that assurance. And this is one of the one of the difficulties I have with the Lotus Sutra is that I feel like that assurance is supposed to be that's what clinches the deal. Um, and I think some people are really bolstered by that by that assurance. Uh, and that's, that's fine. I understand that. Um, but it, it's interesting because I can't, so I'm not buoyed up by, I'm not buoyed up by the prospect of Buddhahood. I'm buoyed up by the model of being as much a Buddha as I can. And I, I just wonder uh, what you all think. Hey, I'd like to let somebody else speak first, please. If there's if there is somebody else who wants to speak, uh, Nathan. This is more of a question, and um, I've been reading in the the reading for the folks who are getting ready for Jukai. Um, there's an essay 
by Suzuki Roshi on the Trikaya, tri I believe it's called. Trikaya, yeah, Three Bodies of Buddha. And I, I keep thinking about that in relation to, um, to this, and I, I wonder, I, I really struggled to understand it, um, but I wonder if you could say something about, or if it, what he was trying to say about the different ways in which we understand Buddha or ought to understand Buddha um, relates to what you're talking about right now. I, my understanding, and I think the way we've been taught is that we are constantly trying to align ourselves with these various aspects of, of Buddha, with cosmic Buddha, with the uh, with the Bodhisattva, with the with the Buddha of practice, and all of these are within us. All of these are aspects of the uh, of the one of the primordial Buddha, if you will. Uh, and I can't remember that that essay particularly right now. Um, but I think our alignment in a very, in a very direct way, we take the posture of Buddha that we see in, you know, we see it in all of the, uh, all the images that we have, uh, we align ourselves physically like Buddha and we, educate ourselves as clearly as we can on the practices of Buddha. And the ultimate one is uh, being uh, not being self-centered, to take the all-centered, not self-centered view which is the Buddha, which is the Buddha view. Uh, and I think that's the, that's really the, you know, one of the essential teachings of, of Suzuki Roshi, one of the essential teachings of, uh, of Sojin. And uh, to notice, I think, uh, how reflexive our self-centeredness is and not to berate ourselves for that. In other words, not to not to layer self-centeredness on self-centeredness, but just to keep setting it aside. And uh, you know, as a as an old friend of mine said, you know, it's like, you know, until I took up practice, I didn't realize there were other people out there. And that's uh that's at the heart of it. So that that's that's a start. Uh, hey, go up your hand, yeah. Thank you. Actually, you just said it. Uh, uh, we can't help but relate to the characters in the parables: the the leader of the caravan, or the person with the hidden jewel in his life. And uh, I think it, what it reminds us of is that we are empowered. And 
being empowered to help others with the tools provided in all the stories. Yeah. And, and so uh, by doing that, we are taking out of ourselves, oh, if I had this problem, that's how I would convince these people to continue in a journey or to see their hope in their own being. And deception allowed. <laughs> so that's really throwing ourselves away and, and giving ourselves to spreading or sharing the Buddha. So. Well, yeah. And the, the thing is that the deception is not self-serving in any way in these parables. The deception is always, or uh, the skillful means is always for the sake of awakening others. Yoni? not hearing you yeah sorry uh so what what you said about um what you said about what drew you to practice uh resonated with me in the sense that i was uh i think something that initially drew me to practice was an interest in in how to in a value system that could help me understand what it meant to be a good person and how to practice being a good person um and In particular, the uh, one of the first early books I read was "Opening the Hand of Thought," and he talks a lot about being an adult, how how to um, practice being an adult. <laughs> and something I don't get from the Lotus Sutra stories, I I don't know. It's as if like any sort of guidance on how to be a good person is sort of wrapped up in these fables. Like I, they, they leave me kind of scratching my head. Like, well, how do I, how do I be decent in the world? Um, and I think I was drawn to Zen because there's kind of a very literal path of how to practice that. So. Well, it is, it, it is in here as well. Um, let me just, I'm trying to find the, In chapter 14, you know, he goes into great detail here. Yeah. So uh, there's a list that says the Bodhisattva does not in does not in self-seeking approach or associate with people of position or influence, uh, is alert not to be taken in by extreme ideas, is careful in relation be, in relations between men and women. And when explaining the law to the opposite sex, in particular, not to become sexually aroused or provoke desire. Uh, whenever acting alone is ever mindful of the Buddha, always remembering to maintain a sense of being with the Buddha. These are all, and this goes on, these are all interpretations that are drawn from the, from the, the text, uh, but they're there in that text as well. There, there's practical, uh, the thing is, It's important to recognize that these skillful means are not somehow misleading or incomplete. They are necessary. They are necessary for our development. Uh, we need to practice these if, if, we, if what we are shown at a certain point is this kind of ultimate teaching of the, of the Lotus Sutra, if we haven't 
shaped ourselves by doing these these other practices, we're not going to be able to receive it. You know, the ground has not been tilled. And so uh, these practices are uh, intrinsic parts of the whole of the whole path. Uh, I think that's one way to look at to look at it. And, and, it's, and it's tricky because there's 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 some mixed messages here about the uh, the status and the awakening of the Shavakas or Pacheka Buddhas, but at the same, uh, on the other hand, it, it's also saying these these practices are part of the whole practice, and so you know I what I feel is like. Our practice is built step by step, act by act, you know, uh, interaction by interaction, and in how we are with each other and with the people who are around us. Uh, you know, the, the, I think the most important thing is is simply to respect each other as you can say as Buddhas, or you could say. As human beings, there may be no difference. Um, did, did Jim, do you, did you raise your hand? I couldn't tell. No, somebody. Oh. Pauline. Muted. Sorry. Um, I, I also felt, you know, very close to sort of your, your description of, of faith and practice. And, um, you know, it sounded to me like a, a lot of what you were saying kind of was the Soto idea of, of practice enlightenment that, uh, you know, I, I feel like what, what that does for me is kind of change the verb tense on the promises of salvation and something like the Lotus Sutra from a, you know, Buddhahood as, as future state to a, a presently available thing. I think that, I think that's right. You know, Soto and Soto Zen, one can argue with that also. It's like, um, the position, this kind of radical position of Zen is good for nothing. Uh, that's that's a voice that you that you hear but you know uh that's simplistic you know what it's what it's aiming to do is to free us from our gaining ideas because our gaining ideas are self-centered ideas and so as long as we have gaining ideas then we're going to be we're likely to be caught in self-centeredness. So it's just like that Zen is good for nothing. It's just like the negations in the, in the Heart Sutra, right? Uh, you know, if you, if you, if you take them as principles, then you're, you know, you're also lost. But the idea of practice, I really do appreciate this idea of practice, of practice realization, uh, that 
and th that's what I was saying a few moments ago that the uh, to take the posture of a Buddha to act towards another as a Buddha is uh, to uh, express your Buddha nature. Now I see a hand raised by the name is in Chinese characters. So, uh, hi. Can't hear you though. You're muted. Okay. How ah, now? Yeah. Okay. So, um, my name is Ping, uh, like okay. a ping pong ball. Um, I, Where are I, you, by the way? Oh, I'm I'm in uh, San Rafael. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> Yes, um, I, I have a question. Um, uh, I, I finally understood what you were saying. <laughs> I, I, I didn't but then you can to... explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just always have this image, you know, I, I, I totally agree what you said about Buddha and what is Buddha and all this nice um, uh, principle to live by. But, but the problem is, I have this image, if you place a nice Buddha um, in the middle of uh, self-centered self bullies, you know, how would he deal with this environment? I, well, uh, I can't exactly say. Uh, you'd have to be there, <laughs> you know? And you, I mean, really the test is, what will you say? If you're placed in an environment like that, what will you do or say in that in that circumstance? Uh, you know, the the idealistic part of me really feels that it's incumbent on us to be able to talk to anyone, but it may not be always possible at that moment. But I think what's important is that even if it's not possible at that moment, this is so I there's a, a song that I sing uh, about chapter 20 of the of the Lotus Sutra that the Bodhisattva never never disparage. And, you know, uh, he just practice, he practices respect, but at but there's one one point in the song is that uh, uh, but the monks and nuns of his time, uh, the monks and nuns of his time, they didn't treat treat him like you might expect. Instead, they they beat him, and they uh, insulted him, uh, and they tried to drive him away. And he just would run off to a safe distance, and then turn around and say, "I will never disparage you." So it's like. He's not a fool, you know, uh, this Bodhisattva uh, is not going to, he's not going to stay in a realm of uh, that, that might be dangerous or where it's pointless to, to try to be nice. Uh, but he's not going to turn away. He's going to try to figure out how to respond. And the Buddha one of the great stories about the Buddha 
uh, is um, I'm kind of blocking the name. Uh, uh, the great mass murderer. What's his name? Angulimala. Angulimala. Thank you. Uh, Angulimala was uh, was misled by his uh, demonish teacher. Uh, he has to kill. He has to make make a uh, a mala of fingers from people Ooh. that he's killed. And he has this, and then this teacher says, oh, the last one you need to get is from this guy, Shakyamuni Buddha. And uh, the Buddha, he sees the Buddha walking along the road, and uh, you know he tries to catch up with him, and through his miraculous powers, uh, the Buddha is just walking. And Angulimala says, stop. And the Buddha turns around and says, I already have stopped. You stop. So the Buddha was, had the capacity to confront these dangers. And I may not. You may not. Uh, but in certain circumstances, you may. I think that's the best we can do, you know, but what's important about this practice, it's, it's just like, it's like playing music or like doing a martial art. It's a practice. You do it over and over again until it's in your muscle memory that you, you know what to do. If you don't have that, if you don't have that practice, then you're not going to have the skill set to meet whatever circumstances arise. And so this is why this is what we do. And by doing that, we expand our capacity. And, you know, it may be incremental over a long period of time. But I think that people have been practicing a while, understand how their capacity, how their um, their ability to withstand difficulty, to uh, to bear the pressures of this world, uh, can increase. That is the faith that I have in practice. Thank you. Thank you, Bing. We're getting down to the last few minutes. I'm going to talk a little more about the other aspects of the Lotus Sutra, I think, during uh, uh, during Sashin. But, um, you know, we've just barely scratched the surface. Other thoughts or comments? Uh, Lynn, hi. Um, well, now that we've come through it, and maybe not sure where it begins and ends, but how can can you bring this back to the Dharma talk with Blanchard Tassahara and you singing the Lotus Sutra song after David had committed suicide and her bringing this so emphatically the main message of this being care for yourself. You're, you are Buddha. 
this is the first obligation. I mean, it was so, I just want to hear you. You don't remember, you said it's at the end. I don't, um, I'm not exactly sure what, what you're asking, but that's what I think we've been talking about. Uh, we're, we're talking about, um, I feel like we're talking about saving the self in recognition that we are all co-constructed by all of the selves around us. At this moment, everybody on this screen is part of myself, and everybody on the screen is part of each other's self. And so we, we, uh, we should look at that as really precious. And we enact it by going in the Zendo. And still, unspeakable things happen and our hearts break. And wonderful things happen and our hearts soar. I think that's a good time to end. Let's, let's chant the Bodhisattva vows. Our practice period is not over. We have Sashin. Uh, we are pressing on. And let's not uh, let's not let up. Let's dig in. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become its.